0: As you know, this podcast is free and we don't even do outside advertisement. And the way we support this podcast is by selling courses. And the reason we do that is because it doesn't just support us, it supports you. So if you're interested in supporting the podcast, support yourself at the same time and take one of our courses. And if you want to find out what our courses are like, we've created several complimentary workshops that give you the opportunity to taste our unique brand of learning experience. To reserve your spot, go to view.life slash explore or click the link in the show notes. Welcome back, everybody. On today's episode, we have another special guest. This time, Johnny Miller. Johnny Miller runs the school called Nervous System Mastery and the Curious Humans podcast. And he's coming on the podcast today to talk with Joe about what is a nervous system. I hope you like it.
1: (sighs) Ah. Hey, Johnny. Hey, Joe. How are you? I am great. Really good. I'm glad to hear
0: it. So let's get started. What, what the, what the fuck is a nervous system in your, in your world, in your terminology?
1: Yeah. So I, I'm, I'm also really interested to hear your kind of map of this and perspective as well. I I think the, the frame that I like to, Explore is, is that our nervous system is like the lens through which we view reality and that when we're in different nervous system states, our experience of other people, our experience of ourselves, of the world shifts and being able to kind of map those states and knowing what, like what our nervous system is doing at any point in time is incredibly, incredibly helpful. Um, and, and I'm, yeah, in this conversation, I'm super interested to hear. How you think about the nervous system in in the work you do, and almost like compare the maps that we have. Yeah,
0: okay. I, I'm happy to share, but I want to dig in a little deeper before I do that. How would you make a distinction between, say, the nervous system and the emotional system and the yeah. intellectual
1: system, mm-hmm. or the prefrontal cortex or intellect? Yeah, so I I tend to I tend to lump the nervous system in with the emotional system, um, and a lot of my my training is informed by um, breathwork and polyvagal theory, which I imagine you've come across, which we can get into if that's, if that's relevant. Um, so I, I tend to, I tend to see that, um, there are certain emotions which are connected with like safety with what's known as ventral vagal. There's certain emotions which are connected with like dorsal kind of collapse, freeze states. And then there's other, other emotions, let's say like frustration or anger, which are more in the sympathetic realm. So I kind of use that as a way of, of mapping. Um different states. Okay.
0: And so for for the audience, can you give us a brief overview of the
1: polybagel theory? Mm, yeah, sure. So it was developed by a guy called Doc Stephen Porge. Um, he basically says that there are three main branches. There's the, the sympathetic, well, the sympathetic branch and the parasympathetic, and then the parasympathetic, which is rest and digest, that has two branches. One is known as ventral and one is known as dorsal. And the ventral is basically like connection. It's like the place where we can play. We feel safe. We feel grounded. We can make eye contact. We, we kind of in tune with ourselves. Dorsal is in a kind of low tone, healthy state is rest and digest. So like when we're sleeping, when we're relaxing, lying down. Um, but it's also, it's also responsible for like when we go into freeze or shutdown, which is like a kind of adaptive um, survival response to stress and some you know some people as I, as i'm sure you know in your work some people when they get stressed or triggered they go into either like anger kind of sympathetic intensity or they go into like collapse freeze kind of shame shut down and and like disconnect um so so that's generally how i think about it and, and the sympathetic is um it's also important to mention that like these states can be online at the same time. So like, like right now I'm probably in some, some degree of sympathetic and some degree of ventral because there's this activation, there's alertness. I'm like talking to you and there's a sense of like, oh, I can feel my body. I can make eye contact with you. I can feel connected. Um, so these states can be blended. They're not, it's not just like one on and off switch for each one. And then you mentioned a third, but you didn't name it so ventral sympathetic and dorsal ventral okay okay.
0: so in the theory ventral and dorsal aren't part of the the same it's an actual third branch because i believe that there's some theory out there about the social nervous system too right that Mm
1: -hmm. part of the vagus nerve and and so how does that fit into the the so the social nervous system is another way of saying the ventral vagal which is part of the part of the vagus nerve the vagus break yeah that's the kind of um attuning part where when we feel safe and grounded, that can be online for, for connection, for play, gotcha. uh, creativity, all those, all those things. Okay. And then
0: what does a healthy nervous system look like?
1: So this is, a, this is a, re- a really interesting question. I think some people have this view that like we should be totally regulated and, you know, calm the entire time, which. You know, it might work for some people, but it's, <laughs> I think it's, it's certainly setting unrealistic expectations.
0: <laughs> it might work for some people, but I've never seen anybody do it. Yeah. Neither,
1: <laughs> <laughs> neither have I. Um, so the, the two words that I think are, are helpful to use are capacity and resilience. Capacity is basically, um, I'm able to hold intensity and, and I have a a strong ventral vagal tone, meaning that I can be with intense experiences without, Going into shutdown or going into overwhelm. Yeah. Um, the other piece is resilience, which is basically your how, how efficiently can you downshift your state of arousal after a stressful experience and find kind of healthy relaxation without relying on substances or crutches or alcohol, whatever it is, which you know a lot of people do. So a, a healthy nervous system is basically very dynamic; it responds adaptively to. The situation. Great. One more question for
0: you around this is that there's a theory. I'm trying to remember the name of the person, but basically it's like, I think it's in the, I think it's in uh, some of the emotional literature of Loan, but maybe, maybe it's, maybe it's the core energetics. There's the core dynamics, core energetics. I, I always get it all confused, but basically like there's a cycle of activity right. and, um, part of that cycle of activity is like activation. And then part of the cycle of activity, I think it's like four or five, but I always think about the last two, which is, so you're finished with something, then there's a release and then there's a rest. Yeah, They're not like release and rest aren't the same thing. They're two different things. Mm-hmm. And so when I hear you talk about um, how quickly you can get back to like a rested nervous system, in your in your world, is there getting back to re- rested nervous system, is there a release and a relax in it? Is it just mm-hmm. a relax? If so, what's the difference between the two? Like to get to that resilience of being able to get back to a restful state?
1: Mm. Yeah. So I um I think what you're referring to is the 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 activation or the mobilization response, which typically has the kind of intensity, which is the sympathetic. And then, like you say, there's usually the release, and then there is the the rest digest, which is where whatever occurred integrates and actually gets rewired in the nervous system. Um, and in terms of how that maps onto polyvagal, the the activation is the sympathetic, where there's the intensity. Then the, the ventral comes online usually during the release. And then it's actually really important, as you say, to have a period you know, particularly if someone's doing like a breathwork journey or going through going through an emotional process, that there is that um, complete like deep rest, which is where the actual kind of rewiring in the from the point of view of the nervous system takes place. And and I believe there's like roughly a five hour window of neuroplasticity, which um, if someone is able to rest deeply after an experience like that, then whatever whatever emerged will kind of go from a, a state to a trait. It'll get rewired.
0: Yeah. So just to make it practical for a second, uh, somebody has goes into a meeting, and they are activated because they get called out on performance, mm-hmm. and they go through the activity of the meeting. And let's say it comes out well. They're like, "Oh, that was good and successful in that meeting." What does the release look like? What What, what would a variety of releases look like, and what would the rest mm-hmm. look like? In a healthy
1: nervous system, mm. yeah. So, um, so what what I could imagine happening is, let's say in the in the boardroom or in the meeting, they're unable to like, you know, fully come into contact. But as they walk out, they realize, oh, I'm I'm realizing there's actually a lot of like anger in my system. So let's say they um, they go home later that day, or the, or they find some private space, they're able to let that anger move, um, and then usually there's a, there's a space where like, there's a feeling of like, ah, like I feel whatever the tension is, whatever they were experiencing, um, shifts. And after that, it's, it's usually really helpful to have as much kind of rest or spaciousness as possible for that to, for that to integrate. Great. Yeah.
0: Just to say, it reminds me of, um, I think it's like one of the foremost, like biathlon, Like the people who like cross country ski and shoot or something like that from Norway or something like that. (laughs) That's a thing. And he he was saying that like seven hours a day he just sits and watches television. Not not the best way to rest, but that resting was such an important part of him being a gold medalist. Mm -hmm. Like he said, so underrated. Like I I do really intense workouts, but I do a tremendous amount of resting so that I can be at top performance. And I think that a lot of people. Uh, underestimate that same capacity in doing any kind of self transformation, how important mm. the rest and not doing is. And something that I notice is when somebody's like, uh, critical voice in their head is constantly, bah, 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 they never get the rest. Mm. So integration is harder. Yeah. It's like oftentimes when people, uh, change the relationship with the negative voice in their head, their transformation happens quickly. And I think or a lot quicker. And I, I noticed that a lot of that
1: happens because they're actually getting rest. Mm. They're not under attack all the time. There's a phrase that Kevin Kelly says where he, he, he shares that most people think about having a good work ethic, but very few people try and cultivate a good rest ethic. Yeah. And that, that's honestly, a, like that's one of the main pieces in the, the work that I do with Nervous System Mastery is helping people to um, strengthen that like ventral vagal tone, which is basically capacity for rest it's like like how able are we to find safety and and actually relax without needing substances um so practices like yoga nidra um nsdr breathing practices are super helpful for kind of retraining that that ability to find relaxation and and what's interesting is the voice in the head will often like if you change the the body if you change the physiology with a kind of a bottom up approach the the thoughts spiraling tend to kind of diminish naturally. Um, At least that's what I've noticed. Yeah, I notice it works both ways, actually. Like
0: you can directly address the voice in the head and then it creates more relaxation or you can use the breath. As I think somebody said, you can't control your emotions, but you can control your breath, which controls your emotions. Exactly. And I'm not a huge fan of controlling emotions because I think that, That goes down a very dark, deep rabbit hole of misery. However, I think creating a uh, a fertile soil of healthy emotions is a really important Mm -hmm. thing. Which is where I would put the I I would put the breath work or the yoga or Mm -hmm. like how do you like what I would say is can I create a soil for a healthy lifestyle is a really important piece as soon as that turns to I'm gonna control my emotions with breath, then it can be very destructive. Mm. Then it can be like very up and out and very um, uh, like uh, overriding and denial, a whole bunch of other stuff can happen there.
1: Yeah, so, so I actually have a question for you around that. Um, where, where do you view the line between, let's say someone is, is like experiencing a lot of anxiety. Like w- what is the line between beginning with kind of like some kind of self regulation to allow them to feel grounded enough to kind of even feel their experience and be with themselves versus you can obviously take that too far and someone, um, they just use a, you know, let's say a breathing practice to just calm down, but then ignore the underlying emotion. Cause right. I feel like there's risks in both, like what one side, someone could just like get overwhelmed, shut down. And then that's not helpful. But then, like you say, you, if someone's always using. A breathing practice to calm themselves down when they're feeling an emotion, they're likely never going to be able to experience the the beauty of that emotion. So, I, how do you think about guiding people through that? Yeah, so I would
0: add the intellect on it, which you've already actually said, which is like, oh, the the negative voice in the head is going to reduce if you're doing the breath work. So they're like, on one level, you have three systems. On another level, it's one system, it's us, right? So, but I think it's a distinct, a good distinction to. Break them into the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and as m- anybody who's listened to my podcast knows, like to me, the prefrontal cortex is the very human, it's the very rational, it's the thought centered area. The emotion is the mammalian part of the brain. And then the nervous system is the part of the brain that's more reptilian. It is that immediate reaction area. And it's a lot of that is in that fight and flight area. And so and so anything that happens in any of them can affect all of them right mm-hmm. so so to me it's all you're you're addressing all three and so i'll take access points wherever i can get them with somebody right so if the breath thing works to get enough access to the other two components i'll take it but i'll make sure that the work is done on all three levels as much as possible so all of our mm-hmm. courses are thinking about it in all three levels in general most people in society are far more head oriented so if you can crack open the intellectual trap that they put themselves in, that's often the first step for people because that allows them to be able to pay attention to their emotion and or their nervous system. Mm. What I notice is unless they're fully committed, unless for some reason or another, they're like, okay, I breath work is there. I need to do breath work. And I have the kind of intellectual structure that allows me to have a disciplined approach to something, which is not a huge amount of Americans anyways, then I would rather work on the intellect, deconstruct that enough, uh, deconstruct the stories enough for them to be able to start finding the enjoyment in the breath work, and then they'll do it naturally or the enjoyment of the emotions, and then they'll do that naturally. Um, but usually the intellect doesn't have enough space for it however there's definitely times i'm working with people where it's like the emotion has to be addressed first or the ner- nervous system has to be addressed first so if i see somebody who's very what i would call hysteric not in a bad word not hysterical but it just the, that terminology is from the Reichian and lowen work um if i see somebody in that hysteric then that nervous system work is going to be really really critical for them mm-hmm. so they're the people who are kind of in a society, they seem a little more flighty. They seem like they like are interacting with like crystals and energy more. Like typically, they're like their emotions typically are bigger. They like that kind of human being. Then, uh, a nervous system work is a really good, important part, first step for them because they'll feel, they have such a they're so in touch with it that they'll feel that breath and immediately. React and know. Oh, this is a good thing that I can enjoy and do. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's kind of it's more a person by person situation. In general, the the idea is to give them all three tools and and allow them to work on all three tools instead of just doing one. And I think that's generally the issue with most work out there is that they're working on one or maybe two of the of the places, and so mm-hmm. really effective for some people, but there's a missing component for others yeah that makes sense so yeah and at some point i think you know i i view it so i had a teacher i can't remember who it was um say that they thought development was like um a whole a bunch of pencils with rubber bands and you could like pull one of the pencils up but there was like the tension of the other ones and so on one level, you pull one pencil up and then everything else wants to come up. But if it's down, there's this tension. And so the, there's a certain way in which development worked where you had to kind of work on all the pencils mm. so that it was there wasn't creating this tension between them. And so I notice, like if I'm working with somebody who's done a tremendous amount of intellectual work or a tremendous amount of emotional and emotional work, then the nervous system work when they find it, it just makes huge difference really, really quickly. Right. Because th- there's that tension has been built. They've got some really tense rubber bands and all of a sudden mm. like it can make a huge difference because it up levels everything.
1: Mm. And, and how do you distinguish between the nervous system work and the emotional work? Like what's that? What's that line for you? Yeah. So the way I think about it
0: is it's like a bit of causation. Like when you said, Oh, I'm, I'm not great at the terminology you're using. I apologize. I, I did read the, the theory book, like, um, but basically you were talking about how uh, one of those things could have two different emotional outputs, right? Like the way I would say it is like, you could do freeze or fight or flight, like depending for me, those are three different. And because there's three different emotional reactions to that instead of just one emotional reaction to that, that's how I kind of layer the cause and effect. So for instance, and and if you think about how they're built on top of each other, it's like the nervous system is kind of the the primary quickest reaction. And you know that from the studies that of, like people can react without ever going into the intellect whatsoever, like just have a snake jump at you and you know what your nervous system is because you'll be halfway across the room before you even realize there was a snake. And so to me, it's like a cause and effect chain. So for instance, I could have the thought, um, my boss loves me, and I could have lots and lots of emotional reaction. There could be like a plethora of emotional reactions to that. And so to me, the, the primary level is the nervous system, the secondary level is the emotional system, and the third is the intellect. However, the dance goes both ways, meaning, I can have like every time a certain thought hits my brain, a certain emotion is going to come up and it can go every time I have a certain emotion, I I go, Oh, that, that, and I tie it to a thought. So mm-hmm. both of them can come up. Like I'll, you'll see people, they get a little agitated because they haven't had enough food and then they'll start a fight and everything will start looking binary in their world. Right. And it's just like, meh, yep. meh, meh, meh. <laughs> So, Um, but the way I would look at it is generally, uh, if I was to say what the nervous system was, I'd say the nervous system is the, is, is close to like fight or flight as fight, flight, or freeze as you can get. Mm -hmm. And then the emotional level is on on a muscular level. So it's, it's, it's like you hold the emotions in the muscles and then the, and then the intellect is the, the world of thoughts. And they all—they're all dancing with each other.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. That—that that, that reminds me of an experience I had when, during a meditation retreat, where I could almost—I was still enough that I could notice when a certain looping thought would arise, there was a corresponding tension in my body, and kind of really mapping that connection and seeing yeah. those those things co-arising was was fascinating. And and I think that was another piece that I wanted to mention in this conversation is the the idea of interoception and like and building this somatic awareness because for most of my, you know, certainly my teenage years and most of my twenties, I was fairly numb from the neck down. Like I was, you know, I, I had emotions, but I didn't have any kind of definition or attunement as to what, like where they were or what I was actually feeling. And Me if, me too. Right. And, and yeah, a huge yeah. part of it was actually like realizing the, you know, the, so many different flavors of sensation that are alive in the body and and increasing that capacity has made the The emotional work just like 50 times easier because for me, at least if I'm feeling something, I like, I may pay attention to the story, but more often than not. And I see you in the, in the life coaching, like you will often, you'll see when they go into the head and then you're like, okay, bring, bring it back down into the body. What's the sensation? Right. And that's at least in my experience, usually what enables it to move by actually feeling this, the interoceptive sensations that are associated with whatever the emotion is.
0: Yeah. 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 For me, there's kind of a a phased, depending on where you are with the emotional work, there's the, there's the identification piece to be able to identify it is really useful. And then to be able to feel, have the somatic experiencing of it is another really important piece to be able to express it is another, to actually have the movement and the expression of it is another really important piece. And then to see that it is not, particularly cause and effect related is another really important piece like that, like you were saying something to the effect of, I realized every time I had a thought, I had a corresponding somatic experience. Mm -hmm. What I've also noticed is that's true. And then that thought leaves and then a replacement thought comes in and then creates that experience. So for instance, I had a relationship with my father that for a long time, every time I thought about my dad, I had the somatic experience of like, oh, I'm not getting enough of his love somatically, right? And I stopped living with my dad, and that got replaced with money. Oh, I'm not getting enough <laughs> money, and the same ex- somatic <laughs> experience occurred. So there's this, yeah. Um, just anyways, a really cool relationship between that. So that it's, it is like a a dance between the three for me, yeah. for sure. Um. I have another question. This is a question I've never gotten a good answer from, from anybody. So no, no. (laughs) And I don't have a good answer for it either. No pressure. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think, I think it's, you know, if I look at just even the research on it, for instance, it's like the intellectual cognitive development has like so much work, so much like research behind it. And then the emotional stuff is far thinner it's starting to get popular now, but the emotional stuff is far thinner. Yep, agreed. The nervous system is pretty thin. The very worst is the energetic system. <laughs> so, what is in your mind? If you can create a distinction between like energetic mm. and a nervous system, if there is one, what what's the distinction for you between
1: an energetic system and a nervous system? Yeah, wow, that is a that is a tough question. Um, right, my. So it, experientially, I'll say that I, I only even w- became aware that the the energetic system was a thing during the breathwork training, where it became obvious that by moving breath or breathing in certain ways, there was more aliveness sensation um, in certain parts of my body. And the more that I meditated and, and the more that I did the breathwork, the more that that even became a thing. And and, and so I, I I think I'll preface this by saying, like for most people, they might not even know what feeling the energetic system might be like um my so i actually listened to a really interesting podcast recently with a guy called dr jack cruz and he he's a very kind of contrarian type figure but he talked about this this theory that our our cells our mitochondria actually produce light they're kind of like light factories and that is in theory possible. And I think this has been done in, in non-human cells to measure the very low bandwidth of light that is created by these cells. And so like the, the working theory that I have, and I have absolutely zero proof of this is that when cells are healthy, they are kind of releasing this low bandwidth of light. And, um, that when we have, um, trapped emotion, trauma, incomplete reflexes from, from childhood, that, that in some ways reduces that area's capacity to produce produce light produce energy and that by going through these somatic releases these, these processes we're kind of um, rejuvenating the cells in that way um, in terms of defining the energy system I, I mean without kind of going to Chinese medicine or any some of the more like esoteric literature I, I don't think that modern science has a A compelling definition which is largely why it's it's mostly ignored right there's there's very little you know most most people get laughed out the room if they start talking about the energy body in a a neuroscientific way
0: yeah it's amazing that so to me i think i when i like look at anything like if someone's talking about science or emotion or dreams or energy work or like Mm -hmm. they have a A language that makes sense to them, but it doesn't really make sense to potentially other people who are speaking other languages. Mm -hmm. And so you can look at something like the energy body, and like you said, there's no not a really great definition, but you can see scientific research about how Ayurvedic medicine, traditional Tibetan medicine or traditional Chinese medicine has really good results and things like ulcers. So Mm -hmm. there's a system that's completely based on the energetic body that has really good results. Yep. But we still don't particularly have an, an, an a definition or know how to work with energy. And it is like the only thing that I could do in a session that would like turn more people off than like, um you know, like, let's talk about your chakras um, <laughs> is to be like, let's talk about God and how like Jesus, <laughs> Jesus's wisdom. It, it's one of those things that creates mm-hmm. uh, that those particular languages creates so much defense in the system. And I, Mm -hmm. and I think for good reason, frankly, I think that there's been a lot of attack. A lot of people have been attacked through the language of religion. And a lot of people have been attacked through the language of energy, right? It's like this, you just have bad energy, so I can't be around you. And it's like, what the fuck do I do with that? Like, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? It's like this thing that's undefined that somebody apparently understands that, you don't understand that you're being condemned slash judged for, and you can't, there's no way to protect mm-hmm. yourself. And so I, I feel like there's good reason why people get really defensive around that languaging.
1: Yep. Yep. Yeah. And, and I think there's a couple of like the other two interesting directions that are, I think like pointing to this, um, both the research with, with heart math, where they'll kind of, um, they will measure the, I believe it's the electromagnetic resonance of the heart. That's what and they're measuring. You, yeah. you can kind of track people's heart rate variability will entrain when they're singing together. Yeah. Or, or dog owners and their dogs, their HRV will also entrain when they're in kind of sympathetic resonance with each other. And I think that is one way in which it, you know, it is measurable. through kind of like charts you can see where these numbers become aligned. So I think that's, that's one way. And then the other is that, during these kind of, um, let's say, practices like using breathwork as an example, that create these altered states of consciousness, there are both kind of certain brainwave states and also changes in the blood chemistry, which can be measured quite easily, which correlate with these kind of energetic experiences that people report. And so I think that there's almost like adjacent things that we can measure and quantify, which like point to the something, point to a there being there. Um, and we're, you know, several years, maybe decades away from being able to actually like take a photo of it or, or measure it in a, in a meaningful way as, as far as I'm aware. Yeah. The, I mean,
0: the amazing thing is that as the one, like, so for instance, like you do certain breath work, then your, um, nitrogen level and your blood goes up. It has a certain experience. Like you can feel like your body tingle. You can call that an energetic state or you can call that a like increased nitrogen in my blood Mm -hmm. right and Mm -hmm. so on one level it's like the energetic system or the people trying to describe the energetic system it's like to me it's like they are describing something that's happening potentially happening scientifically Mm -hmm. but when science defines it they're not going to define it as energetic they're going to define it as and that's the thing that i think happens in all of the areas is that like because we're one system this like language is learning to describe the whole system the intellect Mm -hmm. describes a part of the system a lot better than the energetic system the energetic system but (laughs) will describe something a lot better than the intellectual system but over Mm -hmm. time like you can see that they're pointing often to very similar things with different language
1: yeah yeah i totally agree and and i think you're also right that like the art of, of i guess the work that we do is kind of finding the languaging that resonates with the person like if they're doing a yoga teacher training the energy stuff might resonate and if they're exactly leading a company it's probably going to be more on the intellect or the the somatic
0: realm that's right that's right
1: so um
0: tell me how so you've been pretty dedicated to this nervous system path for how long i'd say kind of three to five years depending on how you define it great and let we'll we'll define it as five years And
1: (laughs) what's the, what's the changes? What, what, what has shifted in you? What has shifted for me? Mm, Yeah. Wow. Um, well, I, would say that, like, I have a background in, I was a startup founder 11, 12 years ago. Um, I went through a burnout experience and, and then six and a half years ago, I, I lost my fiance. Um, she, had an anxiety attack and ended up taking her own life. And that, that kind of journey through grief really like completely opened me up to like my entire emotional experience. And, And I realized how numb I'd basically been for, um, the last five, five to 10 years. And yeah. And in the process of discovering meditation, breath work, and then more recently how the nervous system kind of ties those together i feel like a completely different human i think my my life has has changed fundamentally and and i actually find it in some ways difficult to relate to myself um you know 10 15 years ago but tangible pieces are like the quality of connection in relationships is beyond anything that i i think even comprehended when i was younger um <laughs> i think that's been a huge piece the the amount, the capacity for joy and honestly love as well. Um, and, and, and the kind of the way in which I think, um, my body is constantly giving me feedback about any moment or experience. And as you guys teach with, you know, decision-making and like, I used to be the guy that made a spreadsheet with like ranking things with like one to 10 and like weighted variables and just, you know, really like doubling down on, on the, the intellect for everything. And, um, now I just move through the world in a, in a very different way. And I I think another piece as well is, um, confidence in my capacity in new situations. Like before, I think if I was triggered, I would like, especially in social situations, I'd shut down and I'd feel very kind of like almost like a victim of my own body in in ways. And now having both kind of toolkits to downregulate if needed or even better, just like feel the thing (laughs) in the moment and then, and then move through. Um, that's, that's been life-changing as well. So, I mean, there's so many, there's so many areas that my life has shifted. And I'd say also the doing somewhere between 150 to 200 breathwork journeys, um, with this, this, uh, this guy in Bali, his name's Ed Dangerfield, kind of coming into relationship and learning to love as you guys teach, like loving, these different emotions that previously I'd, I disowned. I think initially for me, it was grief and then anger and then shame and then helplessness. And I can kind of track my journey to exploring those emotions in a somatic way and learning to welcome them more fully.
0: And, and how, how has been your journey of teaching it to others? Mm. What, what, what has been the, like, for those who are who don't know, uh, Johnny has a nervous system mastery class, and I'm, and I'm, my question is like, how have you personally changed in that process? Mm.
1: I would say a, a, in a number of ways. Um, one, I I feel like I've kind of found work that I truly love, in that it feels like the intersection between communicating complex kind of scientific ideas in ways that land and resonate with people. Um, sharing some of my own story and kind of what has been important in in my life and seeing the impact that that's had on other people um and feeling the kind of I guess like satisfaction and joy of other people having meaningful breakthroughs and experiences in their life that's been immensely rewarding um and it's also been like as with I think any business or work it's been its own arena of challenges particularly in the early days like I remember the first time I I did a workshop for like 100 people online, and i i was in I was in Mexico at the time, and our, the town had power cuts every like like once a week. <laughs> And there was a power <laughs> cut that, that had, and there were like like a hundred people on, on a Zoom call. And some of them were like CEOs and leaders and stuff. <laughs> and I like raced down to my friend's house to get this like backup generator and just like ran back and managed to get the power back on. But like, I was in a state, I was just like, <laughs> I was yeah. just like, so um, like expanding my capacity, let's say, uh, yeah. in, in that experience. And, and now, yeah, I, I think now I feel much more comfortable. Leading groups of that size and much more. I, I'd say, if if I had to kind of pin it down to one thing, there's more trust in in life and more trust in myself to show up in a way that, um, yeah, that that where things work out and flow. One of the things that
0: I really appreciate about you as a teacher that I don't see with a lot of teachers um, is that you're transparent about your learning process. So you're not like when I see you on Twitter or when I see you out in the world, you're, you're, I would say you're far more interested in learning than teaching for sure. Like if I just look, if I just look at the time spent, Mm -hmm. maybe it's because in the situations I see you, but even on Twitter, I see you more interested in learning almost than teaching and, Mm -hmm. and also very much happy to share what you're learning even if it's not a part of your teaching.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: And so I'm just which is rare for teachers. A lot of times teachers get caught in the kind of the knowing aspect of things and and not mm. in the like learning aspect of things. Mm. And I think and I think there's at some point also a natural tendency that happens after years of doing something that you have to be really specific about who you learn from. Right. So mm. like everybody wants to teach you. <laughs> that's that can, that can not always be a useful or fruitful thing. So yeah, I'm just wondering, like, so the question behind that is, is that natural? Was that a learning? Is there a, been a bit of a, a dance with that? What, what's been your experience and journey with, mm. with the being a learner and being a teacher and, and finding that balance? Mm.
1: Yeah. It, it is a, it's a really great question. Um, I think the, the honest answer is, is I love learning and very selfishly. I think part of the reason that I'm, I'm doing what I'm doing, doing what I'm doing is that it's a fantastic excuse to continue learning. Like it gives me a platform to invite people like yourself and other, um, genuine specialists and experts in other fields that I can then learn in real time with them in front of a big group of people. And so I, I, I kind of view both the podcast that I have and the course as like a, a forcing function to continue my own learning. I think that there's certainly a point where um, like you can kind of, or, or I can gain a certain level of like, I feel like this topic makes sense to me now. And then for me, it's like, okay, what's the next, what's the next experiment? What's the next thing I want to really learn about and go deep in? And you know, recently I've been fascinated in, um, neurodivergence and there's a number of students that come in with ADHD, with, with different, um, a constellation of different symptoms. And I find it fascinating talking to them, figuring out like how their experience maps onto what I know. And, um, yeah, I honestly, I just, like, I, I would hate to one day become like, an expert and, and stop learning. Like that actually terrifies me a little bit. <laughs> um, and, and and I think something that I heard on your podcast, you, you guys were speaking about this, about how that kind of teacher-student dynamic can create disconnection in a way. Yeah. Um, and whilst I think it's, it's obviously important to present with a level of professionalism and expertise, the more that I am able to like view my students as people that I learn from as well, the the less that disconnection happens. Yeah. Um, you spoke a little bit about the breath work.
0: You did. You said I did. You kind of offhandedly said I did x amount of journeys. Mm. And um, breath journeys can be a whole. I mean, my I think I think you know this. I did breath work like every week, if not every other week, depending on my travel schedule for like seven years, like hour long sessions. So and I did this. I didn't know that much. Yeah. So um pre you know it was it was one of the, the she's the past dead but she was the last person who was doing kind of the pure reich breathwork mm-hmm. that hadn't taken the reich breath work and like modified it right i think a lot of the modifications that have been done to it like lowen's work i think is great so so i'm not suggesting that it was better by any stretch but but i've also done a whole bunch of other kind of breath work in my life like coherent breathing and, and all sorts of, like I have a book this big of like an Indian breath work person and I'll, I'll like literally that my friend gave me and I'll just like open it up. And I'll be like, let's try that for a bit and I'll try it and see what it does to my system. Um, so what do you mean by breath work journeys? And, and mm. what, what's, what, what's the result in your mind? Like what's that, not the result, but what's
1: the experience like for one of your breath work journeys? Yeah, sure. Um, well, I think it's helpful to categorize breath work into, there's many categories, but the two main ones in my mind are like the kind of real time shifting, like either upshifting or downshifting your state. So something like um, triangular breathing or humming will calm people down. Or if you do like breath of fire, Kapalabhati, Wim Hof, hyperventilation, that will amp people up and you'll feel more alert. Um, Can we just stop for a second?
0: So everybody who's listening, just big deep breath in. That's what he's talking about as far as just like a breath to regulate a state. Your state is different after a single deep breath in. Mm-hmm. I just want to, I want, I want, I love be- yeah. that visceral experience, not just the, the explanation.
1: Okay. Go ahead. Yeah. It's great. It, it, and, and, and you can, um, I mean, we, we could, we could do like a, another full breath and then humming on the exhale also releases nitric oxide. And that's one of the. One of the most effective ways of downshifting is just like a long hum all the way to the end of your breath. And again, you'll, you'll feel so much, so so much different after just one or two hums. Want to do
0: it? Yeah, let's do it. Okay. We'll do one just because we don't want it to be too boring.
1: (laughs) Yeah, get comfy. So full breath in through the nose, inhale. And then humming through the nose.
0: Fuck that. It feels too good. Let's do another.
1: (laughs) (laughs) The rest of the podcast will just be Joe and Johnny humming for 20 minutes.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It has that same thing with the, that's like the, the Ujjayi breath has that same thing where it, like you can feel it like toning the, the, the vagus nerve, vagal nerve, whatever. Not good mm-hmm. with words. Mm-hmm. But yeah, the the nerve. You can the constriction that the hum causes the also creates like. like a vibration in that nerve corridor. That's cool. I've never done that one.
1: Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's great. Um I did it this morning in the cold tub as I was like trying to find my breath. Um so so that's one category. <laughs> and the other category is has many names, but like transformational breathing is, is the general category. And that includes like holotropic, Reikian, conscious connected breathing, rebirthing. There's, there's a, there's all different types of names. Um, the particular branch that I trained under was called facilitated breath repatterning, which is a form of conscious connected breathing, but the practitioner will, um, basically read the breath during a journey and make certain, adjustments, certain verbal cues, nerve flossing, different things to um, both create more ease in the exhale and sometimes more activation and energy on the inhale. And generally speaking, um, once someone kind of drops into this circular breathing pattern, the, the journeys go from anywhere between an hour to two hours. And once someone's kind of dropped into the breath, these incomplete reflexes or like stored emotions will tend to kind of rise to the surface. And f- for me, it's, all, it was almost like layers of an onion. Like one, one thing would come. I would move, express whatever the thing needed to be felt would feel. And then there was a, a brief integration and then the next piece would come up. And it was just like so many different things would, would, would arise. And for me, it's, it's always like, I don't recommend that people do this online because I think there's a huge amount to be gained from having an in-person facilitator, like really out of safety reasons, um, s- such that if something big arises, they can be there to help co-regulate and help you to ground.
0: Totally agree. Yeah, we do mm-hmm. our version of breath work and, but we'll only do it in our in-person stuff.
1: Yeah, I, I think it's it's really important. And, and, and also having a high facilitator to breather ratio as well. Um, in, in the, the place that I trained, it's, it's one to four, um, is, is what they tend we to do
0: one to three, one to four. Yeah.
1: Nice. Yeah, I totally agree with you.
0: Mm-hmm. Gotta have it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you know, I've seen people go comatose. I've seen people have like massive trauma response. I've seen, I've seen so much puking, so much stuff happens in those rooms. You really yeah, want completely.
1: That, that high ratio. And it's not that, you know, I, I know there's people out there that do, you know, breath works like crowds of like two or 300 people and it will work in the sense that like big emotions can arise but what we talked about earlier with that mobilization kind of cycle it's it's much harder for people especially if they don't have that kind of um down regulation capacity to to feel through and to find the 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 ease and calm and integration on the other side so i've i've known people that have done some of these holotropic let's say and then they've been in this kind of semi-triggered state for the next like several weeks or even months and they found it really hard to to oh. downshift so yeah i worked with somebody who
0: did um some version of a breathwork journey and didn't sleep for fucking a decade well yeah, no, yeah. N- no doubt there is like and i i would i would i would offer that it there's one not knowing how to downregulate is part of it but there's also that's the or a trauma gets released and they don't know how to actually integrate the trauma is another okay. potential thing. But the, mm-hmm. and so, so there's a re-traumatization that happens and, but there's another too, which is like, you brought all this stuff up, but you didn't heal it. So mm-hmm. maybe it doesn't re-traumatize, but like, great. You had the experience. And I've seen this with like, with both some drugs that it'll do or medicines that'll do the same thing and breath work where, they get these big states, they get these big outs, but there's no integration of it. So you're not actually seeing transformation of a person over time. Mm. I, like I did another ayahuasca journey and I had this other big experience, but like the way you're living, your relationship, your friends, like the, your level of connection, your level of emotional fluidity, none, your thought patterns aren't particularly changing. Mm-hmm. Um same I've seen the same thing with breath work where someone's doing breath work that doesn't have the integration care afterwards where they they're having big experiences, but they're not actually integrating into
1: transformation or development. Yeah, absolutely. And um one interesting piece that I love about breath work in particular is that when you're if you're breathing someone, especially in a one-on-one capacity, you can you can see the changes in their breath kind of before and after, and you can tell has that Has that thing landed? Has it been integrated by the way that they're breathing? And, you know, if they come, if they come for another session the next day or the next week, then it's like, you can see if that actually landed in their system. Whereas with a lot of other modalities, you know, particularly psychedelics, things like that, it's very difficult to know, like, was that actually a meaningful shift or was it just a big cathartic release that didn't have any, like, you know, lasting impact on, on them as a human? On integration. Yep. So I know that at one point, I was was
0: suggest was suggesting that you might do some live in person ones. Has that happened, or mm.
1: do you have plans for it in the future? Yeah, I've been doing um one on one sessions with people here in Boulder. Um, oh, great. Mostly, mostly friends, and also the odd kind of client as well. Awesome. Um, which is kind of a good mix because I I do really miss the in person live interaction that I know you get with with groundbreakers. Um, yeah, which has felt like a good good balance for me. Oh, that's great. Fantastic. Glad
0: to hear it. Yeah. I mean, that absolutely changed my whole world. That's the seven years that I did. I mean, it changed the way that I had an orgasm. It changed the way I laughed. It changed the, like my yeah. capacity to m- my resilience, my stress level. It changed so much, my armoring, the physical musculature armoring. It, it had a huge impact That seven yeah. years. A lot of the impact happened in the first little bit because I was very ripe. And then there was just like something that
1: happened like
0: over time that there was an eroding and a wearing away that happened over time that was really useful.
1: Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned laugh, like my, both my laugh and my voice have changed. Even yeah. I, I listened to a podcast episode I did four years ago and my voice sounds noticeably different then compared to how it sounds now. And I think a lot of that is because the, the tension in my lower belly and lower diaphragm has a lot of it's kind of been released. And so when you're doing your breath work, I, I could geek out like w- w-
0: inhale, exhale, body position. Like I could completely geek out, but I, I w- it would bore the crap out of everybody. But at some point <laughs> I'd love to chat with you about it. But yeah. I'm just curious when you're doing the in-person breath work and you're watching somebody breathe, are you making adjustments in any way to help them deepen into their breaths? Or is it like, it, is it an interactive
1: thing or is it a, like a, prescription thing no it's constant real-time adjustments so there's, there's hands on the body usually most of the time um and generally what what we're looking for is both seeing like what is someone's window of tolerance what is their capacity and keeping them within that window yeah um and then titrating or pendulating is another term the breath to either increase more energy usually by like deepening the inhale, yeah. sometimes getting like hands under the rib cage and allowing more more air to go into the upper lungs yeah. or more often than not, especially with kind of type A high achievers, it's helping them find ease in the exhale. So often people will have like holding in their throat or their lower belly. Wow. Will... It's really similar. Uh, it's really similar to the work that I am oh, Sorry it's, to interrupt. It's, no, that but yeah, it, it's all, doesn't surprise It's all, me.
0: for me, it's the same thing. It's the most full breath inward capacity breath, yep. like a stretching, like how do you increase the, both in the belly and the chest and other places, but like, yep. and how do you release with no effort? Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So it's really, actually really similar. Fascinating.
1: And and, and then finding out what are all of the blocks and tension to either yeah. a full Kind of vibrant inhale or a relaxed effortless exhale that's right and usually usually starting around the rib cage and then kind of working up or down depending on and, and also you know bearing in mind how many sessions is someone going to do and do you want to open up a big piece knowing that you'll have three or four or five sessions afterwards to help integrate it if something big arises well i, I could geek out I'm, and after we yeah, turn this do. up i want I <laughs> to keep <you> on. <laughs> <laughs> okay
0: i have to go to another podcast so it was a total pleasure to have you. Is there um anything that you want to leave uh our audience with? Any any thought process, any good wishes
1: or tell them about anything you're doing? Yeah, um well, well thank you so much. This has been so fun. Um I would so I, I have a podcast as well called Curious Humans Podcast. Um you've been you've been a guest. Um if you enjoy this conversation, there's a chance that might resonate too. And yeah, and if people want to learn more about the nervous system mastery course. Uh, we have a spring cohort coming up in mid-March and the website is nsmastery.com. Um, and there's, I, I love seeing how much overlap there is between our two communities. There's, there's a bunch of people joining that have taken AOA and I know yeah. vice versa. So it's it's really cool to see that Yeah, see, see that overlap. Very sweet. Yeah.
0: Pleasure, pleasure to have you on, Johnny. Yeah, you too, Jay. Yeah, pleasure. All right, see you soon. Yeah. Thanks for listening to The Art of Accomplishment. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please subscribe and rate us in your podcast app. We'd love your feedback, so feel free to send us questions or comments. You can reach out to us, join our newsletter, or check out our courses at artofaccomplishment.com.